you know, I was just speaking to a group of, of students recently how, you know, now that we're back in school after COVID and I sometimes groan in the morning that it's too early and I wish I didn't have to go to school. And I think, <laughs> what about the girls in Afghanistan? They would go to school seven days a week if they were allowed without breaks. Like all they want to do is sort of be in the classroom who are fighting every day to get something that the rest of the world, quite frankly, takes for granted and groans about at an early morning alarm clock. I'm Dan Shulman, the president and CEO of PayPal and a longtime devotee of Krav Maga. Welcome to my podcast, Never Stand Still, where I explore some of the guiding principles I've learned in martial arts and interview world-class CEOs, creators, and changemakers about how those philosophies apply to their lives as they perform at the top of their game. One of the first things we learn in life is that it's not fair. So this episode is all about how you flip the script as an underdog. How can you change a system that's not built for you? And how do you turn a position of weakness into one of your unique strengths? And once you're no longer an underdog, how do you shake off the scarcity mindset and learn to embrace abundance? Kelly Campbell is here to explain how training from a weaker position can help you prepare for a fight. Hi, I'm Kelly Campbell. I've trained within the Krav Maga Worldwide System for over 20 years. I'm a fifth degree black belt and the highest ranking female instructor in the United States. Life is chaotic and you can't usually control your circumstances. The idea is that the fight can happen at any time. That is why we often train from a position of disadvantage or a neutral position in Krav Maga. If you train from a weaker position, you'll still be ready to kick butt even when the conditions aren't optimal. At the beginning of 2020, right around the time COVID hit, today's guest, Suzanne Ellers, became the CEO of the Malala Fund. Yes, that Malala. The Malala Fund is the namesake of Nobel laureate and Pakistani activist Malala Yousafzai, who co-founded the organization with her dad. Suzanne has spent her entire career advocating for women, but her role at the Malala Fund is one of a kind. You know, this is a podcast, so you can't see me perhaps. I'm a white American woman. I'm 48. I have two beautiful daughters and crazy dogs. I am not the face of girls' education. Malala mm -hmm. is, in my mind, the face of girls' education, the voice, the heart. So what an opportunity as a CEO to be in service to that, to that vision and that voice and that leadership authority. So I see this role as such a unique kind of CEO role as, you know, I'm, I'm the executive charged with running a well-run and effective organization and making sure that our co-founder and my principal is always where she needs to be to kind of keep the global movement energized and dynamic as it relates to this issue. And that's something, that's like an opportunity of a lifetime. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the organization's mission and why it's so important. It's a great place to start. And what a great mission about helping girls everywhere lead and learn. 
so modeled in so many ways after Malala's own journey and, you know, the incredible privilege she had to be raised in a family where uh, she was pushed to lead and to learn kind of regardless of external circumstances and what she wants to do for girls of the world in that same vein. We focus specifically on girls' education and so looking to secure 12 years of free, safe, and high-quality education for girls around the world. And I'll tell you, when I started this job, I had some people say to me, well, isn't that work pretty done? Or that doesn't sound like it should be that hard, you know, <laughs> except that there's close, like right? 130 million girls around the world who are not in school and should be. And then COVID layered on top of that, you know, we'd predict at least another 20 million, if not more, won't go back to school. So a mission that's really alive and well and needs us kind of more than ever, I would say. It's hard to believe that in 2021, millions of girls around the world still don't have equal access to education. Not to mention, COVID has added a host of new challenges. But it's also given a new perspective to privileges that might have been taken for granted in the past. You know, I was just speaking to a group of, of students recently how, you know, now that we're back in school after COVID and I sometimes groan in the morning that it's too early and I wish I didn't have to go to school. And I think, <laughs> what about the girls in Afghanistan who would give, like they would go to school seven days a week if they were allowed without breaks. Like all they want to do is sort of be in the classroom. That's sort of a group of girls who are fighting every day to get something that the rest of the world, quite frankly, takes for granted and sort of groans about at an early morning alarm clock. I think about stories that we heard from both Pakistan and Northern Nigeria in the middle of COVID. So going to school, having it disrupted like 90% of the world's countries from one day to the next, kind of closing schools, and people scrambling to figure out how we were going to keep these kids hungry for education, for learning, for social interaction, you know, how we were going to keep them connected through radio programs and through solar powered like digital devices so they could keep up with their lessons. Like that kind of urgency around education is so almost unfamiliar to people who, again, like I got a safe school within walking distance. I, I never really think that much that it couldn't be available to me and how much that orientation has really sort of shifted my thinking about the advocacy of Malala Fund. Identifying a position of disadvantage and trying to understand it for what it really is, instead of trying to solve it in a vacuum, seems like the only way to make a real impact when it comes to global advocacy. I mean, it's so apparent that the traditional approach to education is failing, as you mentioned, tens of millions of girls across the globe. So maybe, if you could put that in context for us and explain how the Malala Fund is reconceptualizing the approach to try and level the playing field. Yeah, I think there's a few kind of pillars to our work that uh, are, again, sort of sort of born out of Malala's experience and her and her father, Ziauddin, worldview and their kind of true north around girls' education. I think the first thing that we do that we're known for, and it's in our name, fund, is that we channel resources, financial resources to individuals, champions, advocates who are on the front lines in their community 
trying to solve these problems in ways that are locally relevant, culturally appropriate, and getting at the sort of hardest to crack, you know, kind of nuts of the challenge. And what a privilege to be able to sort of share resources, to sort of raise funds in order to distribute funds and really resource some incredible activism around the world. We're also really interested in centering the voice of girls. So not assuming that we have it right, or Malala even doesn't assume that she always has it right when it comes to the experience of girls. So putting their their truth at the center of policy, advocacy, decision-making, research, we do it through a digital and online newsletter called Assembly that is literally written by girls and their experience of education access, of domestic violence, of climate change, of, you know, any number of issues that are impacting their access to education and really putting that story kind of front and center to the way that we do our work. So that's sort of two ways that Malala Fun operates. I mean, of course, the world knows Malala and Ziodine. So I have to say we also have a really kind of high-level global approach in using Malala's access and incredible network and friendships and relationships to pick up the phone and get heads of state on the line within minutes to say, this is inexcusable. What's happening in this context can't continue. We've got to mobilize resources to work on girls' education in this setting or that setting. So I really want to say that we don't take for granted that incredible leverage we have from kind of a global advocacy perspective with Malala's voice and visibility and and renown. Leveraging Malala's access to influence world leaders is a brilliant way to upend the power dynamic and advocate for greater change within the current system. It can be frustrating to disagree with others, particularly those in power. But when you keep the conversation open and engage on a tough issue, You can try to identify your opponent's end game and potentially find a common ground for all parties involved. I'm sure as you speak to those global leaders, there is the idea, of course, and the imperative of gender equality, but I think it goes well beyond that because there's so many positive effects for society when girls and women are offered access to education. Can you explain some of those and the kind of economic impact that that can make? Because I know leaders and who are listening to this will all be fascinated by that. Yeah, I love that question because I think you and I would agree that girls' education is sort of a right in and of itself, right? It should be happening kind of regardless if it has ancillary benefits. And I think that luckily for Malala Fund, we have a lot of people on that side of the equation who say, even if it didn't do the world any good, I would still want to secure education as a basic human right for every girl everywhere. So that's like always where I want to start. Like that's sort of assumed and... If you need extra data, you know, if you need evidence to kind of walk through a new door of advocacy, there's a ton of them. I think the one that is on my mind right now is climate and thinking about the intersection of climate and girls' education and how educating girls equips them to be better leaders, better decision makers, better able to navigate really difficult choice points in places where climate impact is happening in real and sort of concrete ways. I think we see it around economic productivity and growth and sort of 
girls' and young women's participation in the workforce. And we know that if all girls finished secondary education, so high school sort of in U.S. terms, that we're adding something like $30 trillion to the global oh. economy. You know, so if you needed sort of a GDP kind of argument and you right. needed to get at the economists in the room, we're leaving this talent like on the bench in ways that seem absolutely irrational to me. I think the last example I would give is around peace and security and how much we have seen when women are at decision-making and peace-building tables. And I know some of your earlier guests on this podcast have spoken to this. You know, the results are longer lasting. The results are embraced more comprehensively by all parties at the table. And if you want those young women at those decision-making tables, you have to get them through their education, their 12 years and then on. So it's got like all of these extra sort of ripple effects you know, if being at the core of sort of education as a human right wasn't enough for you, there's a lot more. It yields, I guess, to the world that we're trying to build. The more women and girls who have access to quality education, the better the outcome for all of us. It's as simple as that. But ultimately, the point of a good education is to secure a good job. So I wanted to know, how was the Malala Fund helping these girls use their knowledge when they became adults? I know there's a lot of success and I know, you know, like me, that I always appreciate how much we've accomplished and then look ahead at how much more there is still to accomplish. But as you think about girls and young women going through the educational system and then coming out of it, how do we assure that the expectations that come up with education are realized by having available jobs and careers that they can move into. Hmm. It's a great question. You know, where when you first started asking that, I was thinking about like the success that we've had and how do you kind of keep building on that? And, and that is actually a version of your question, right? Like if we get the 12 years secured, we yep. get the free and the safe and the high quality education how are we sure that we're then, you know, sort of depositing those educated young women into a workforce that knows how to leverage their talent? And I think of two things that we're doing on the kind of 12-year front that's trying to sort of seed the territory for what's next. And one is this question around the sort of digital divide and how gendered the digital divide is, mm -hmm. what digital literacy looks like in parts of the world, where the 21st century is taking us in terms of the skills that are needed in the workforce to be successful. So one thing that I think Malala Fund and our partners in the girls' education space have to stay sort of laser focused on is that we aren't just fighting for safe and free and high quality education, but as part of that high quality, we're really thinking about relevant education, digitally relevant education that keeps people connected and current with the way that the world is changing, like pretty much hour by hour last time I checked. So I think that's sort of one part. And then I think back to the climate example, another, another way of thinking about it is as we look at the sort of evolution of green jobs, as we look at the way countries are trying to think about not just climate mitigation, but adaptation and building resilience in communities, looking at some of the severe weather that we've seen even recently here in the United States, are we, again, using those 12 years of free, safe, and high-quality education to turn out young women who are going to be the problem solvers 
for the climate crisis that isn't going anywhere and many scientists predict is only getting worse. I feel like it's part of the responsibility that we don't just sort of hammer away at this 12 years, but we say these 12 years that are filled with incredible instruction and really like of the moment tools so that after these 12 years, we have our leaders, you know, basically sort of equipped and educated and ready to sort of save, (laughs) to save us all and to save the world that needs saving. And the convenient thing about saving the world is that it starts at home, which is part of what drew Suzanne to this line of work in the first place. Even sort of in my South Texas upbringing, my parents active in the Catholic Church, from the earliest days asking questions about the role of women in the church, and where were the women leaders in the church. You know, I did not grow up in uh, a sort of high-income family. We did not do international travel when I was younger. I didn't have a passport for years, maybe not until late in high school. I uh, Actually, that's not even true. I think maybe it was college. Like, just sort of knew there was a world out there, but, you know, it took some time for me to kind of muster the resources to access it. And then what a gratifying journey that has been that just sort of drove home for me that it is sort of one big world with an enormous set of interdependencies and how beautiful my notion and vision of community has become the more I'm exposed to what is not what I grew up in. I love advocacy, I think, is the other thing I would say. Watched my parents, you know, sort of notion of of advocating for justice and advocating for change within their community. And so really wanting to kind of do the same and raise my voice. And so have always been attracted to the work of organizations that are doing that upstream work around policy change. And that doesn't mean that I don't think direct service is important. You know, the building of schools, the delivery of meals, I'm motivated by all of it. And I really love the kind of multiplier effect that you can get with advocacy and that you can change an enabling environment for thousands with the stroke of a pen. If you get the right champion behind you and the right piece of legislation to sort of move through. So Malala Fund does that. It's locally led, too, which I love. So none of this, well, I think I know what's best in northern Nigeria, even though perhaps I've never traveled there. No, it's like our Nigerian colleagues know what's best in northern Nigeria. They know their policymakers. They know their community members. And that feels so, I'm sure there are listeners who are like rolling their eyes, but that's not how it's done in a lot of places. And so to be at an institution that not only sort of says that's who we are, but then we really walk the talk of investing power and authority and finance increasingly into those local voices feels like that was a real attraction for me. Empowering local minds with the resources to come up with locally relevant solutions is a great takeaway for how we can all start to think about leveling the playing field. But no matter where you are, change rarely comes easy, even if it's necessary and even when it's welcome. I'm curious, you know, the fund was set up by Malala and her father in 2013. So it's been like seven, eight years or so. And it's been seven or eight years into its lifespan. And now you come on as the CEO. How do you both support and honor that framework that's already been set, but bring your own expertise into that and maybe make some changes to move it forward as well. How is that working for you? 
Yeah, that's such a good question because I think, first of all, change is hard. <laughs> Let's yes, be clear is. that absolutely. even if you know it's needed, it's still hard and scary. And I think there, I was just using this with my executive coach yesterday, this analogy that we've always had limes and today I want lemons. And all of your lime advocates are like, what's wrong with me? You've enjoyed me for years. I said, well, there's nothing wrong. We just have to switch our sort of citrus choice. And I feel that tension sometimes in the organization that says, well, this is how we've done it. And it always has worked. Are you somehow, you know, kind of dishonoring the contribution that I've made? And I think that's a very important reminder for leaders that change I think first and foremost needs to come from a place of really respecting and honoring what had been done before in all of its complexity and perhaps with its warts. We did this. It worked in many ways. It didn't work in all ways. And we're now at a new moment and we're going to turn a corner and we're going to pivot and we're going to respond to the opportunity that's in front of us. So I do think that it's absolutely critical that you're moving and looking forward, but you cannot forget to sort of honor and respect what's just behind you, kind of standing on the shoulders of that success, if you will. I also think that there is a build that happens in advocacy organizations. So if our advocacy has been successful over these last six or seven years, then that has a lot to do with the moment that we're in right now, where we are attracting the support that we're attracting from donors. We are getting the opportunities at key kind of global and international audiences and stages. Like that is a product of all the good work that's happened for the past seven plus years that Malala has been a global force for change. So, you know, sort of also not taking for granted that we got here magically because girls' education is important, which it is. We've also laid a lot of groundwork to get us here. This is sort of part of the moment of those policymaker meetings that you have, you know, sort of walking up and down the hallways of different centers of power, telling the story of girls' education and the change that it has on peace and security, climate change, economic growth. When all of that starts to gel for people, then you've got this new moment to take forward. And that's a little bit of where I think we are in some respects right now. This is so relatable for businesses, nonprofits, and individuals alike. Once we've ascended to the next level where our impact is undeniably greater, the new challenge is accepting that we're no longer an underdog, which is much harder than it seems. I think one of the hardest things to do, and I say this is for me, perhaps as well as for my team, is shifting from what we call this scarcity mindset in nonprofits. Mm -hmm. It's never enough, your margins are thin, Nobody really gives you the money to just run your organization and pay your people. You're always like scrabbling things together with scotch tape. and But then all of a sudden, you get to a point where you are better resourced and you really are building for the future. And then your mindset has to shift to one of abundance and to say, this moment affords us the opportunity to be generous to sort of set the stage for others, to invite others into the work that we're doing. And that sounds easy because certainly abundance is a lot more fun than scarcity, but you get stuck in old patterns of scarcity thinking. And so I have been working really as a leader, like what kind of courage and new muscle does it take for me to say, we don't have to worry about that anymore. What we have to worry about is making the change and having the impact that our investors expect from us. 
So I do feel like that is a really alive and well moment for Malala Fund right now. That, again, what a gift and what a privilege to be in that space. But for leaders out there, you know what I'm saying. It's hard sometimes to break patterns and to get yourself out of a way of thinking that just can't serve you for where you're headed next. But when you shift into an abundant mindset and start contributing to an ecosystem that advances equality, you create more wins for you and those around you. And you do it without compromising your values. There's this really zero-sum game thing that happens, and maybe in the corporate sector, but definitely in the nonprofit sector. Like, I have to attract your gift for my work because that's my bottom line that helps me make my impact so that you stay a donor. And I think that's so wrongheaded. I think that there is a much more kind of generous place to be that says, there is enough to go around in this world. Mm-hmm. And if we can convert people to a notion of equity and of social justice and of shared humanity, we will all get our due. Yeah, there, there will be enough to go around. So I've often said in meeting with a donor, someone says, well, your goal must be to get that donor to support your organization. I said, actually, my goal is to get that donor really clear on how their values align with the rights of women and girls, with social justice, with efforts around anti-racism. If I can get them to walk through any one of those doors, I've contributed to their doing better in the world, which makes my enabling environment for Malala Fund's work better. Would I love to have them as a donor? Of course. I think girls' education is like the cornerstone issue. I think it's one of the most like multiplier kind of highly connected issues you can invest in. But I'm happy to have you in the universe of donors and stakeholders and supporters and partners who are kind of committed to this. So this idea of there's enough to go around feels really powerful for me when I'm attracting new partners and stakeholders to our work. Yeah, I think it's a um, profound point, actually. I think uh, in the business world, we're wrestling with this idea of multi-stakeholder capitalism where, Mm. you know, the primacy of a corporation is not just to its shareholders, but to multiple constituencies, the communities around us, our employees, their health, their mental health, their physical health, their financial health. And by looking at this in a more holistic way, you create an environment that's self-reinforcing. Yeah. Like you invest in the health of your employees and they do so much more for customers. And then that helps to build a great company over the medium to long-term. Even though you you may not be maximizing profits next quarter, you're creating a community, a country, a democracy, an economy that works for all and therefore helps in the success of of every business uh, going forward. Suzanne hit on something I think about a lot these days. We are in the middle of a much needed value shift, a global realization that businesses need to be sustainable for everyone involved, not just those on the top. It's certainly not easy, but if we work together, We can shape a world that is stronger, fairer, and more inclusive. We've all been an underdog at one point or another, 
And I think we can all agree that everyone deserves a fair fight. You know, the last question uh, that I have, Suzanne, is one that I I always ask in this uh, podcast because, you know, I try to learn from everyone that I talk to. Everyone, you know, that I talk to has had such success uh, in their careers, but we all know that that success was definitely not overnight. There were setbacks we all had, sometimes some really painful setbacks. And I'm wondering... Are there lessons or and specific examples you might use of just one or two times in your life that have just been so hard and difficult and how you responded to it and got back on your feet to be able to do all the things that you're doing today? Yeah. You know, I, I joined Malala Fund in February of 2020. So weeks, <laughs> literally weeks yeah. before COVID. Yep. I mean, I, I still haven't met the vast majority of my team. I saw Malala recently. It had been almost two full years since I'd interviewed with her. And that had been the last time I'd seen her in person. And so there were days in that early time of COVID, remote work, so geographically dispersed, really difficult conversations happening around racism in the United States and globally, inequity in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I think that was a low moment for a lot of people. And I think I was a part of that, you know, really interrogating my own set of values and principles, my character, how I show up as a leader. And so I I won't say that that was an easy journey that I took with my Malala Fund colleagues, with my board, with my greater community. And if I attempted every day to be to be truthful, if I attempted every day to make some small bits of connection, I actually had a spreadsheet that showed me every staff person. And every day I would endeavor to spend, you know, sort of send three quick Slack messages, checking in. I saw your dog on the last call. Hope things are good. Understand you got a wedding coming up. Hope COVID's going to still allow it to happen. Right, like if I every day brought care and intention and humility and really good character to the work that I was doing, we could sort of get through anything. And I think that that is not a lesson for just tough times. It's actually a lesson I've kept with me that there is something to be said for incredibly disciplined and intentional leadership that begins and ends with the people with whom you work. The rest of it really does figure itself out. The strategic plan and your log frame and your donors and your calendars. If you are every day nurturing those connections and those friendships and that mutual respect. So I would say that that has been sort of a huge lesson for me probably over the last year. I mean, now I'm 18 months into my tenure. It feels kind of incredible. That is such a great reminder that there's no better return than investing in relationships with your team and those around you. That's how we get through challenges in life, even when the deck is stacked against us. Thanks again to Suzanne Ellers for being a wonderful example of a mission-driven CEO whose work makes the world a better place. So what can you take away from this conversation to go from an underdog to unstoppable? Can you keep showing up even when the odds are against you? Can you find strength in the power of your mission? 
And at the end of the day, can you overcome the scarcity mindset to embrace all the amazing gifts in your life? If you want to advocate for girls' education around the world, check out the MalalaFund.org. And you can even use your PayPal account to donate at the link in our show description. I'm Dan Shulman, and thanks for listening to this edition of Never Stand Still. Kida. That was really fun for me, so thank you for the journey. 